Welcome to Ride Along Chronicles. I'm Vicki. I'm Tina. And I'm Sally. We are three great friends who created our own support system as we raise our families in the challenging first responder lifestyle. Our confidential guests will share their stories in this safe space that didn't exist for us. So ride along with us as we chronicle lessons learned and provide helpful resources to keep Leo families in the front seat. Hello, ladies. It has been amazing that we have had the opportunity to meet with some mental health providers that focus on first responders and their families. We have been able to share so much of their experience and wisdom with our listeners. With each one, we have gained more insight into the challenges first responders and their families face and the wide variety of professional services and resources that exist to assist them. We have. Today, we have an opportunity to meet Jennifer Cooper, a licensed professional counselor who will um, who works with our first responder um, population. And she's going to share um, her journey into getting into this career and why she loves working with this population. So hi, Jennifer. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you decide to become a licensed professional counselor? Well, I grew up in a law enforcement household, so my dad was on the job as a U.S. Deputy Marshal. He served 22 years with the Marshal Service, and prior to that, he had served uh, in the Vietnam conflict and was a combat medic uh, or corpsman Mm -hmm. um, assigned to a Marine unit uh, during that conflict. So Mm -hmm. he was assigned in Tucson, Arizona, so that's where I grew up. Uh, Go Cats! And... (laughs) Spent my time there before finally relocating up to the Phoenix area. Um, So I think because of that, going into law enforcement myself wasn't, you know, a huge stretch because I was, you know, somewhat familiar with that world and how that went. So um, I got on the job in 2005. I served 12 and a half years with the Maricopa County Adult Probation Department and worked a variety of assignments, but worked my last seven years as a supervisor overseeing some specialty units. Um, During my time with the probation department. I also worked several years with the sex offender division. So I supervised a population of sexual offenders, Mm -hmm. not only in the community, but also at the Arizona State Hospital and the SVP program. That's what used to be known as the sexually violent persons program. They call it something different now, but anyway, um, and I was in, I was new to graduate school at the time and had done my first program and then decided to just stay in law enforcement. Um, I thought I was going to go federal for a little while, made a couple, um, attempts with agencies, but ultimately got promoted and was going to do more time with the department. And then at some point, I kind of realized that I really wanted to do counseling, always with the intention of treating my own. Um, I've always wanted to treat my own uh, community. But the degree that I had at the time did not allow me to license in Arizona. So I had to go back to school um, and go through a second master's program. So I did that. Um, And when I was doing that, I had to do a one-year internship. And I ended up taking that internship with the Phoenix Fire Department and got on with the Phoenix Fire Department in 2014 and never left. (laughs) So 
I started as an intern and then I was a volunteer and then I went to a paid position. I'm back on volunteer status with them now, but I've been with Phoenix Fire almost nine years now. So that experience gave me sort of the second half, right? Because I, I had some law enforcement background. I, I had, you know, was an officer myself, but then also that fire piece. So then I got the perspective of the fire department right. and police and fire. I mean, although we are, you know, part of the, the same side of things, um, we are very different families and we are very different cultures. So it really helped me a lot to gain that working knowledge um, and working in crisis response. That's what I do at the fire department. That's awesome. amazing. Mm -hmm. So can I ask, when when you made that decision to go into counseling full-time, mm -hmm. was it difficult to leave your law enforcement career? And if so, how difficult was that? It was very difficult. I mean... Um, stable career? You yeah, know? stable career. I mean, you know, paying into the state retirement system, you know, all of the things probably could have promoted higher than where I was at. Um, you know, the way that I explain this to people is it was... I felt it was being asked of me, um, you know, and I'm, I'm talking to you more from like a, you know, a, a spiritual perspective, but I felt like helping others, serving others in a helping way was being asked of me. And then it was being asked a little louder and a little louder and a little louder <laughs> mm -hmm. um, until finally I had sort of a pivotal experience that really caused me to say, okay, yep, okay, I'll do it, I'll do it. So I ended up starting out though, taking a part-time position at a private practice when I was still working in probation but I was starting to work there like in the evenings and I was brought on specifically to help grow a first responder program so this this owner at this practice was wanting to incorporate first responder care into her her agency and heard about me through through somebody else and said yes please you know would love to have you and and get you to start working on that and if i can ask that how hard i mean looking back now do you even wonder how the heck you did that you know working a full-time 40-hour job and doing well not only it sounds like the schooling part but then you were actually seeing patients and working the second career that you were building do you even recall that time? <laughs> I, I, I have just a few memories. I mean, they're very scattered. But yeah, no, it was, yeah, I, I don't recommend it. I don't, do not recommend sure. that. No, I was already licensed. So I was I was licensed at the associate level. So I was already done with everything. I'd passed my board and I was, I was at that um, associate level. But yes, I was working my full-time job, you know, 50 plus hours. Plus I had my job with the fire department once a oh, week. Well. Um, so I had that, but I was trying to kind of ease into it and just make sure that, you know, I had enough resources and everything else. But that final jump was definitely really, really hard. I mean, anybody who, you know, any retiree people will say this, but, um, you know, I mean, the day I had to give up my gun, I cried. Um, <laughs> the day I had to give over my badge, I cried. I mean, it just, it was it's grief but it's a transition knowing that I was moving into something else that was being asked of me and the way that I think of that now is I still protect and serve but right, I, I protect and serve in this other way now um, to help people be alive to help them be healthier and stable and so that is my service now and how I see it so it sounds like working with 
first responders is a calling to you. How did you build up your practice to work with first responders? Yeah, so when I was originally started at that, you know, the first practice that I worked for, like I said, I was brought on sort of to help, you know, gain mm-hmm. um, some first responder clients. And I and I, I did that. I started taking on, you know, um, a few police officers, um, some firefighters, but just a kind of a small group. But then I was also working with just a lot of civilians as well. Um, and it just kind of went from there. I mean, you know, uh, I would get a new referral or somebody would tell their buddy or um, and it just kind of grew from there so but by the time that I left and I was ready to go out on my own um, you know at this point I have a much smaller number of civilians um, but primarily what I see is police and fire so police fire EMS I think my third largest group um, are nurses honestly so I work with a number of um, and especially ICU and ER nurses because um, I think the the fire thing we just you know the blood and guts and gore we just we understand one another I think so that happens and then I do have some civilians that have been with me you know for several years that will call and just check back in but yeah so now primarily that's that's what I, I so do do you find the longer you know especially branch out on your own you know most people worry about how am I gonna build my practice now you know where am I gonna get the networking the resources did you find that everything is word-of-mouth you know the vetting process really comes from one first responder to another saying I went to see her I liked her go see her and less of that oh, I'm just, you know, I use psychology today or I just Googled, um, because I think it's probably one of the only ways that a first responder would even see someone is if somebody else also went and liked them. I mean, is that do you actually see that fruition? Absolutely. Um, in fact, that's that's the biggest compliment to me is when somebody sends somebody else that they care about uh, to me because you're you're you have trusted me and then you're trusting me with somebody else in your life. So, and I probably am, you know, kind of. Uh, different in the way that I am not advertised anywhere. I am not on psychology today. You can't find, um, you know, my that information out there. I don't keep a website, mostly because I don't know how to run one. But also, I just <laughs> I just don't keep a website um, because I get the majority of my referrals either through word of mouth, through the agencies that I have established relationships with, um, or through my partner agency, um, Public Safety Crisis Solutions. So, wow. yeah, we wow. work very closely together. So we are separate entities, but we work very closely yes. together. So when you mentioned that, I actually um, recently, actually, even myself saw it here that we thought, you know, I work in peer support. So we thought, okay, that's the one area where it doesn't matter what agency we come from. You know, we, we're all in the same game for the same reasons. So we actually support each other, share resources, share information, share training, which is unusual a little bit in, in first responder world. But I have found that, and you kind of just said it, that because there are so many different types of treatments, but also types of first responders, and you know, along with their childhood things and their environmental things, that you guys do the same thing. That it is not, um, it's it's not abnormal for you to see somebody, and then maybe see that they might need a, a different type of modality or something that maybe one of your other colleagues does really well, and that you guys actually, it's not a threatening thing to refer another colleague to some, uh, excuse me, refer another first responder to another colleague, or even just mutually work together, you know, for different um, parts of that treatment, um, and collaborate with, like, 
for, uh, facilities, you know, that have mental health treatments. I think, you know, if I have somebody in crisis, then yeah, I, I consult with them right. to say, hey, where do you think there's a bed? I think this person needs to go inpatient, or I think this person needs an observation. Where do you think we should send this? And even though the person, you know, might be my patient, their patient, we are working together on that. That's great. So as a mental health provider, can you tell me what are some of your biggest challenges and what are some of your greatest rewards? The biggest challenge out there, I think, is just getting people to come in. I think the longer I do this, the more confidence I gain in being able to connect with people. And it's like if I can just get you in the door, I have a, a certain level of confidence that I can hopefully convince you to stay mm -hmm. and show you um, the, some things that I, I can offer to help you feel better. But it really, the biggest challenge continues to be just getting people to come for help. Um, and I will tell you very honestly that that f the fire service overall has historically done a much better job at peer support, at mental health, uh, programming services than police have done. Police is doing a lot better, and there are some agencies here in the Valley now that are, are really working hard at it and trying to make it a priority. But still, that cultural stigma exists so much that that's really what has to be changed. I, okay, I, I've got to ask this question. You've you've worked. You've got a foot on both sides of the line. Yes. Why is there such a disparity between yeah. these two agencies? I, I don't understand. For, and coming from the family view, mm -hmm. they're both out there right. putting themselves on the line, serving others. Why and and for the same city? Why are we experiencing such a disparity? in the care for our first responders. Yeah, I th now this is just completely my opinion, okay. um, but I do think that there is something, there's something with fire that they, they have an easier time and they do a better job, I think, at having a family environment, right? Because these are crews that live together. Mm -hmm. So your assigned station is your house, right? So you live, this is your fire family, this is your crew. You know, sometimes you're going to get rovers in and out, whatever, your captain might be out, whatever. But you have sort of this a set family. And when you go to things together and you ride back home together and you eat together and you cook together and you sleep together, that I think automatically fosters more of that, you know, that, that group. Unfortunately, what we have on the PD side, especially right now, uh, is such a problem with staffing shortages. You know, men and women are out as a single unit waiting for backup when something goes wrong. And so that is so much more isolating. And even if you have a partner that you're with, it's still, it's you and them. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. not the rest well, of not the a huge and family. I, right, not a huge family. And then I don't. when we t interviewed the fire, uh, I can't remember her name, but she was talking about how they come off of, if they have a critical incident, they're actually pulled from their shift immediately where the PD, they have an incident, and they're going to the next call within a half an hour. They don't get that time to kind of yeah. go back and debrief right away. It might be a day or a week, and I, that may contribute as well yeah no you're right about that and again that's another example unfortunately of the fire side of things doing a much better job 
and they also you know i feel like the pd with they you know typically they bid every what year or whatever so they may not be on the same squad for very long and they don't get to That's build those too. relationships either yeah so do you think the level of trauma first responder experiences can impact the changes in their behavior? A hundred percent. I mean, that's right. like <laughs> that's like a no-brainer question. Yeah, a hundred percent. No, it's a very real thing. I mean, I, I firmly believe that the job changes you. I mean, the job changed me. It, it, it just does. And fortunately, you are you become so accustomed to seeing people often on the worst day of their lives, mm. you are exposed to sometimes the very, very worst um, you know, sides of humanity. Um, if you're somebody like me who you know, worked uh, with sex crimes, I mean, you're seeing the, the worst, just the most, the, the lowest depravity of human beings that we can get. And that changes your perspective. I mean, it can't not. So it, it's, it's always interesting when I talk to somebody who had was already in their their family so they're they were already married or maybe had a small child at the time when they got on the job or those that end up meeting their spouse once they're already on the job and those differences right because because when you meet your spouse really does matter like if you were pre or or post hiring um, because you're you're different you know you're sort of different your person and and you're you're right because pre-hire we know them. I uh, mine was a pre-high, right? We were together long before, and the person I knew yeah. was not the same person ten years down the road after Absolutely. being on the job. I believe it's, you. It was, and it, I, I don't know. I feel like that's a bigger struggle than it, meeting somebody that's already been on the job. You you only know them one way. Yeah. Where we we have a different this person I dated, and now they're totally different and. So we didn't grow the same way. Yeah, and and there's that cynical, that cynicism, Mm -hmm. and you're just like, who are you? This is not who I remember. And I I can only imagine how this goes in marital counseling, too. (laughs) You know, when you're smiling, you're like, oh, yeah. I think it is totally individual because although, yes, there is something to be said for that, like you meet them already um, seeing the challenges that they have and then you decide, yes, I can be with this person or not. But I also think there's tremendous value to having that history with somebody so that you have something to look back on and say, you know, you are not yourself. I remember right. you when you weren't like this. That's the husband I want back. That's the wife that I want back. How can we how can we work ourselves back to that place? So there's tremendous value in that. So I think either way, I mean, it's just it's pros and cons. Um, I, I would like to believe that anybody can make it through. Um, you know, of course, we know that unfortunately the divorce rates um, in law enforcement are are pretty high, but they're they're high everywhere. I mean, we have to sure. remember that too. That it's this is just yeah, a think, societal uh, yeah, norm. The general population is probably caught up to yeah. uh, law enforcement. Yeah. So for our listeners, you know, when um, as you start seeing, you know, these folks that are now five, ten years into their career. And they are dealing with this kind of continued exposure of trauma. You know, you fix something, you, the next day you're back, and nobody calls to say hello, nobody calls, you know, to come and have coffee. What are some of the biggest changes as far as, like, you know, sleep or appetite or, or even behavior changes that you see in your, you know, through your practice when 
that trauma really starts affecting a first responder? What does that look like? Yeah, I think so sort of what you were saying, Tina, where, you know, somebody might go on a critical incident and then, you know, they're expected Mm -hmm. to clear that call and then immediately route to the next one. You have to think about that over the course of a shift, 12 hours, you know, 15 hours, if, if you work a lot of, you know, that holdover time, that then you come back home and you're really expected to walk in the door and pat heads and, you know, kiss your children and get dressed <laughs> and do all these things. And you're expected to kind of just reacclimate back home. And some people can have tremendous difficulty with that. And I, I remember I have personally had that experience of um, making that transition. I would get off shift uh, from, from the fire department, you know, at, at like 06 in the morning and then either go right back home or, or go right to work. And I remember moments of walking in and just thinking to myself, you have no idea where I was two hours ago. Right. And now here I am and I have to clean the dishes out of the sink. It's sort of a surreal thing. So one of the things actually that I work with um, my clients on are, are called what I, I call them transitions, but it's basically like, how do you get from work to home? Mm-hmm. How do you get from home to work? And what can you do in that space to help yourself do that more seamlessly and giving more care to yourself? And that definitely includes giving them recommendations for when they come home and then working with their spouse as well like when I come in this is what I need I'm going to just do a straight walk I'm going to pat heads and I'm going to go right to my room and I'm going to change my clothes I'm going to wash my face and I need 10 minutes and I don't want people talking me and people kids hanging off me and all this other kind of stuff I need to make that transition and then when I feel like I'm ready to be present then I'm going to come out and greet the family then I'm going to say hi then I'm going to how was your day what's for dinner what are we doing blah 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 okay now tell me all the problems but those are the little tricks that can go such a long way in just kind of filling that you know it's like that padding in between because yeah, nobody, we've heard that nobody shares that. Nobody yeah. teaches that. No, no nobody shares definitely that is not taught. But we've heard it several times. Um, in that we need that kind of space and and just grace to be able to transition from one place to another, mm-hmm. for sure. Because we know they tell us, but you're actually giving examples and walking through those samples so they have some options to come back and work with their loved ones to kind of implement it. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of nice because I think sometimes they, they want to, right, or right. we want to, but we necessarily don't know how to either approach the conversation yeah. or what does it even look like, a right. transition. You know, say, I took off my you, uniform. What is, yeah. I'm wearing regular clothes, yeah. not the whole piece. Yeah. Can I transition this into, can you give me a clinical definition on the difference between PTS and PTSD, what those two look like? Yes. So the easiest answer is PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder. And that is the clinical um, diagnosis as rendered by the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual. That's what we use as psychologists, psychiatrists, licensed clinicians. That's the diagnostic manual that we use. So PTSD is the clinical diagnosis for that. Um, 
PTS it stands for post-traumatic stress. And post-traumatic stress symptoms are things that anybody can experience after any type of a stressful circumstance. I like to break it down into smaller parts and have people understand that post-traumatic stress is really just stress post-trauma. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if we, if you think about it from that direction, it's like, oh, this is the stress or this, these are the symptoms that I'm having because post-trauma I had this traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. And that traumatic experience can be anything, certainly as we're talking about here, you know, occupational mm-hmm. uh, traumas, but it could be a loss. It could be a car accident. It could be, um, you know, a, a really bad fight uh, with your spouse. It could be any of those things. And so those signs and symptoms are what we get. So when we say PTS, it's we're just saying, post-traumatic stress so we're referring to the symptoms but we're not necessarily saying that somebody has PTSD in that they meet the diagnostic criteria for that clinical diagnosis Um, it is my opinion that most of us who work in public safety at minimum are going to have symptoms of post-traumatic stress I have symptoms of post-traumatic stress I was in law enforcement 12 and a half years, been with the fire department over eight years. I've, I've seen a lot of bad shit. I have symptoms too. I think if we just normalize it like that, that's that's one of the, the messages I really try to get out there, especially when I meet a new client, is to say, this is, this is what we really should expect. Um, and changing that part of the culture, changing that part of the stigma to say, it should be the expectation that people are going to have symptoms of post-traumatic stress, not the exception. You mm-hmm. are not the exception Correct. when you start to struggle, when you can't sleep at night, when you lose your appetite, when you're fighting, when you're on you know, marriage number two or three. You are not the exception. We treat you like the exception when we're doing it the wrong way, and that's really what we have to stop and just say, expect that when you see bad, horrible, things, you're going to feel some kind of way about it. This is something I like to tell my patients kind of day one. I tell them, you're coming in here maybe because your work has affected you and you're you're having you're having these feelings and you're you're, you're having some of these signs and symptoms of post-traumatic stress. I'm here to tell you that that's a good thing, right? <laughs> Try to hear it as a good thing. If you are not affected by what you see, we have a way worse problem. Yeah. And I can't help you with that problem. I can help you with these problems. But if you're not affected, you're probably more on that antisocial or that sociopathic side, and I don't treat that. Oh, that's a oh, hard one. Yeah. Makes Very sense. true. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah. true. Yeah. Because, I mean, you have obviously first responders come to you for different reasons. Obviously mm-hmm. the best one would be somebody who recognizes that they do have some symptoms mm-hmm. and are coming in, you know, and got a great resource. But you also see folks that are given an ultimatum either by their work or their significant yeah. other family. And so now here they are coming into your office and you're thinking, okay, here we go. Have you found, um, what are some unique ways, even if you have found any, to even get somebody to not only trust now, cause that's a whole, but get vulnerable enough to even start looking at, like you just said, different ways that you're even explaining things to get them on board so they can actually start treatment. 
Um, I'm sure that's got to be challenging. Yeah, it is. And I, I do on occasion get people who are voluntold um, or mandated <laughs> to come and see me. And, and, yes. and you know, I what I find works, and this is, you know, probably from my PO training, I, what fi- I, works is, well, you're here. They told you you got to be here. So you can either stare at me for an hour or we can try to do something. But you're going to be here either way. And I, I just try to kind of call it out like that. Um, you know, I was kind of smiling when you're asking that because I, I have a, a joke. I say joke in quotes because it's, it's not really funny. But um, I, I get so many of my police that come in once their wife has packed the car, put the kids in the back seat, and is on her way to her sister's house. Hmm. And that's when he calls. That and that ultimatum. And I will I will take you in any condition that you come, but man, I wish you'd back that up six months or a year, or probably more like five years, if we're honest, <laughs> yeah. right? But, um, you know, if you, you come in when you come in, and, and I will help you in any condition that you are. And have you found... You even the ones that let's say come and voluntold or just on that final ultimatum versus the one that voluntarily completely come in do you still find that even those hard starts you know to treatment once they kind of grasp it and the need for it are amazing afterwards you know like have changes their lives you know get much better have you seen some of that definitely i think people have to see that something works so, you know, even if I just start off, so back to those transitions, right? Just right. giving some strategies around that. They do that. They do that for a couple of weeks and then they come back in and they say, oh, that, that actually worked a lot better. Um, I didn't, I only had, you know, two fights with my wife this week and not five that we normally have. Woo, like, man, that's a victory. That's, that's a, victory. That's a success. <laughs> yes. And that small success um, will hopefully then we build on that so that I can then eventually get them to do the really hard work once we're stabilizing that stuff at the start. Sounds like you've got a method to your, to your treatment. <laughs> a method to my madness. Yes. I do. Well, I try. And how, what does that look like? I mean, that's one example, but yeah. I have a feeling you have quite a few more. <laughs> My method, I think what I have found that works the best for me is I really see my role as a helper, as a companion in that journey. So that that journey towards wellness and whatever that looks like, because that's going to be completely individual. But if we're going to do trauma work, if we're going to be doing EMDR, if, um, you know, we're just going to do a lot of talk therapy and I might be treating stuff from the job, I might be treating childhood, I might be treating, you know, a lot of it all at the same time. But I see my role really as a companion. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by that is that I I am constantly saying to my clients, whatever it is I'm going to be here with you when we do EMDR I'm with you I'm going to go into every room that you were in I'm going to go on to every scene you are never going to be alone in this process ever at any time and I think that alone really helps to take away the fear of I don't know how to do this by myself and so 
I'm going to have somebody with me now. And I think can also help lessen that feeling of the isolation of the loneliness in it. And mm-hmm. I'm the only guy that can't handle this. Everybody else is fine, which is never true. Um, I'm the only person that can't handle it. Right. So I think it helps sort of like take that away. Um, you know, but you know, for example, just, I'll just give you another visual. This is how I see it. So, you know, you have a steel door and behind that door is all the traumatic events. It's all the pain. It's all the hurt. It might be failures from your life. It's all the shit that you don't want to look at. Not only am I going to walk up to that door with you, but I'm going to help you kick it. And that's how we work. We are together the whole time. Which, wow. Mm -hmm. Which coming off of that example between fire and PD, you know, most of the time when they're experiencing that traumatic event, they are alone Alone. police, you know? Mm -hmm. So even just having somebody to say, no, you you don't have to do this alone. I think that's that's step one. Yes. That's step one of, oh, okay, wait, wait. Like I have a safe person that kind of already believes me and is going to be here and I'm sure that just grows as you start like you said talk getting into the real heavy yeah do you think that's a huge piece that is almost important to build take down that wall and break down that door a little bit to before you even jump because sometimes we do we hear first responders when they're like at their worst like you said like bo- bottom of the barrel basically they've hit that rock bottom then they go in and everybody expects them to like just oh one or two sessions and you'll be back on the job and we're over here going no 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 he or she has gotten to this point to finally get treatment, you're looking at several months of, you know, maybe sometimes not on the job to be able to get through all these layers before they can safely make that decision to even do I, you know, can I come back? And if I do, what are my new tools? And, you know, how does that look like? Um, Do you find that sometimes they do get kind of pushed right back into um, work while they're starting some of this heavy treatments because they just don't know other people don't? I was going to say you open up some of these doors and, I don't know, how do you close it enough or or put a shield up enough to get back to working when you've got these open sores that aren't quite healed yet? Yeah, and that's where... I really do my best to make that assessment. Um, I am not at all afraid to recommend that somebody is taken off duty for their own wellness so that they can do that. Because, you know, one thing that's not going to work very well is, like you said, going into those really hard places. And then, you know, the next day, now I'm now I'm back on duty Mm -hmm. and I'm back on, you know, whatever. Or, um, you know, um, I, you know, a lot of my clients come and have the ability to come during work hours because they can you know use use the time and their their supervisor can approve that and that's okay or they come to see me and then they go start their shift but when we're working on the really hard stuff that doesn't work well you know, yeah, for, obvi- for obvious reasons, yeah. like I just got done talking about this, you know, horrendous thing that I had to experience. And now I'm going to go shag, you know, 10, 12, 15 calls. Um, it's just that it's, it's no. not going to be a good combination. Um, I am pretty, you know, transparent in how I work with clients and will try to be, you know, very open and honest. But when I'm doing 
heavy trauma work or especially when we're doing EMDR treatment, Mm -hmm. I am very, very structured about that. And I literally give people rules, like what you will and will not do after you walk out of here. Um, And I'll tell people very honestly, like, don't screw up my therapy. Like, I just (laughs) did some work with you. You will not go home and watch Saving Private Ryan or go to Country Thunder or whatever else. Just for those who are listening and they don't know what EMDR is, can you just briefly explain what that is, what that means? Yes. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy, which is a form of trauma therapy that works using bilateral stimulation. That's the technology of EMDR. And bilateral simply means left, right, left, right. And although we honestly don't know exactly how EMDR works. It somehow works by making the brain go left, right, left, right. And that helps to process and reprocess um, traumatic content that gets sort of stuck um, in the mind. So when people have the symptom, for example, of intrusive thoughts, images, or even somebody who's having flashback experiences, which is, you know, the very, very high end of that re-experiencing symptom Mm -hmm. of PTSD, that it really is the mind sort of getting stuck on that one picture or that one moment in time, and it's trying to process it, but it just can't on its own. And so that's why that recurring, um, you know, flood of images or stuff keeps coming to them. So EMDR helps just kind of flush that through. And then it does all kinds of other cool stuff as far as helping the person um, um, eliminate, best case scenario, the distress that they feel around that experience. So it's not, it is not hypnosis. It's not brainwashing. It's nothing like that, but it's how I describe it is it's a way to make the experience livable because you had this experience and you need to be able to live with it in a much better way than you are currently. One thing with trauma that's important to know is that trauma is the one thing that does not get better with time. Right. Okay. Okay. So grief, um, you know, loss of somebody, loss of a pet, a divorce, um, you know, all of those things can and will get incrementally better with time. Trauma does not. Trauma stays exactly the way that it is until it doesn't anymore, until something changes with it. And so EMDR is one um, treatment modality that helps to change that trauma. And the thing that I like the best about EMDR and why I use it so frequently is because of that, because trauma stays exactly the way it is until it doesn't anymore, EMDR can get to anything. So I can be working with somebody who's already got 15 years on, 20 years on, and we can go back to an experience that they had, you know, as a brand new cop, and we can grab it. If they were, you know, in the service before they got on the job and some, they had a traumatic experience, we can grab that. Something happened to you when you were 10 years old and you have any kind of memory around that, I can grab that. Because so EMDR can get it. They have to have an active memory of it. It's not something that, if there's a it's repressed really memory that they've just put away and they 
they aren't yeah EMDR is not it's not regression therapy at all um it's nothing like that so it has to be and you know obviously I don't want to make this too complicated but um there are there are some methods to help somebody like somebody can say I have this memory but I only have a couple of vague pictures Mm -hmm. you can still use some EMDR techniques to help them do you actually recommend in your practice that when a first responder is struggling um, it could be with communication, it could be with parenting issues, it could be with sleep, that kind of stuff, but specifically if behaviors that uh, make it difficult in the family, you know, to, to kind of, like you said, um, switch roles and uh, be engaged that way. Do you find that you prefer at some point, or do you even, bring in a significant other or parent or spouse into the first responders therapy at some point to start kind of educating both of them and getting everyone involved to kind of make those plans and make this a successful treatment? I do. And I have done that at times, especially when I know that we're going to enter into some heavy trauma work. And I know that we're going to be doing EMDR for a period of time. That is something that I will do because all of you as spouses, you have also given service, right? right to the job and so making you part of the solution is always going to work a lot better than making you part of the problem right Right. so and especially because you know with the emdr and i'm i'm very transparent about this emdr is destabilizing Mm -hmm. okay so what i mean by that is that it can make things feel worse before they feel better um, you know, just like I, I, I tell my clients, EMDR is not a good time, but when it's done right and it's done well by a, you know, well-trained, competent provider, it can get you on the other side of things. And so there's, you know, but we, we got to set it up. And part of that might be including the spouse to say, this is what you can expect on EMDR days. These are my expectations of what this person, um, can and cannot do and your support and your help with that is exactly what I'm hoping for wow mm-hmm. that's amazing because even you know we're talking about spouses to others but we're also forgetting the sponges in the house yeah. which is you know when they are making these when a first responder is actually in treatment and your set's destabilizing and it sometimes looks worse I think we also forget that they need to be included sometimes on yeah, mom or dad is struggling, and yeah, they are getting treatment, and yes, it's going to look a little yucky, and we have to be patient, uh, but it's still okay, and you're still safe and all that. I think sometimes that can even be more scarring to a child not knowing why you know their parent is now different and sometimes worse before better. I mean, do you find that even those get forgotten sometimes? They do. And I will try to encourage people to, you know, talk to their children. I mean, obviously age appropriate, depending on what it is. But yeah, I mean, it is it is totally okay to tell your children, I'm not okay today. You know, mom's struggling, dad's struggling. I buddy, Mm -hmm. I'm not okay today. Just say that. You know, just say that instead of creating this environment where you're not talking or you're just going to go sit on the back porch or the garage, right? My guys are like constantly going and hiding in the garage and being there and don't talk to anybody and don't look at me and and don't open the door to get in here. Um, You know, that doesn't, that, that creates that 
tension and that creates that that feeling that is not safe then for the family because the family is guessing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. I mean how many times have you felt like I'm the one walking on eggshells <laughs> you know even though you might not be there might not be any abuse I mean right. you might not you know your husband or wife is not being abusive outwardly in any way but there's just that feeling um, you know another thing another suggestion that I try to give is that um, and this, this is for PD, but this is definitely also for fire too. That first 30 seconds in the door is the most important. Okay. Because you are training your family on what to expect when you get home. And the last thing that we want is for kids, for dogs, um, or for spouses to go, Oh, dad's home. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then everybody scatters, right? Yep. Don't do that. I don't want you to do that. Come home. Don't start yelling about things. Don't start picking apart, you know, why is all this shit on the counter? Don't do any of that, right? Because that that initial um, greeting matters so much. So, okay. I need to branch off to this part of it. <laughs> Communication. Between the spouse and family members of first responders and the first responders. It's like we're sometimes we're on two different planets, right? For the first responder, responder family member, and I'll, I'll just go right now with the spouse. What is the best way to communicate with them when they see their first responder struggling? Like, yeah. for example, yeah. if me as a spouse and I see my husband having a really hard time how can I effectively talk to him and say, I don't like what I'm seeing. Something's wrong. How can I do that and have them hear it? Yeah, great question. So one of the things that I hear pretty regularly is one of the worst questions you can ask is, how was your shift? Oh, (laughs) gosh. Don't ask that question. Um, Ask something that is more like, um, do you need rest today? Um, Do you want me to make you something to eat? Um, A question that is more trying to look at helping them meet a need that is less direct than how was your shift or how was your night. There's something about that that can be simply impossible to answer. I was going to say, I think even with kids, when you ask them how was school, like they can't answer that. So how are we expecting our first responder to answer how was your shift? Right. I mean, there's so many things that happen. Like I can't even tell you in three 10 words what happened correct and it's overwhelming correct and on top of that when you ask that question right your husband in that moment is having you know 50 100 thoughts and not only can he not even articulate what he has maybe seen but he doesn't want to so this is something I think is important to understand so oftentimes that reluctance to share about work and talk about work can really come from a place of protection mm-hmm. right you understand yeah. that that your yeah. your police officer or your firefighter is really probably trying to protect you ignorance is bliss 
Right. When you don't know, when you haven't seen, when you haven't smelled and you haven't been there, um, ignorance is bliss. And they, there is a certain protection that doesn't want you to know what they have just seen and can't possibly try to explain to you what that is. So that's why that question, um, can be just really triggering or really off putting. So that's why I tell people don't ask that, but asking, do you need rest today? Um, or is, is there anything that you need? Um, that you know I can do when did you last eat right when did you last eat something like that that is just helping them meet that need in the moment how about even a silver lining like what was the best thing about today yeah I was gonna say can you yeah like focus on like hey did you have something good I don't know I guess I've tried to find small joys in things so Mm -hmm. and focus on like sharing a small joy today yeah I mean, absolutely. And it, I mean, it just, and it just depends on the person. I mean, if you're, you know, if you've got a really like, um, you know, we call them salty, right? If you have somebody (laughs) like that at home that you're living with, I mean, that question is probably never going to work. Um, so if it was me, if I'm married to that person, I'm going to say something like, Hey, did you rescue any puppies from, you know, the river today? That's how I would ask them. Yeah. Hey, why not? (laughs) It all makes sense. I want to kind of do this towards parenting. Um, personally, no stranger to parenting young adults, right? As a first responder, um, why do you think they find it so difficult or, or have they shared experiences of why they're having difficulty connecting with, communicating to, and parenting their adolescent, their teen, and now going into a young adult? There's such a Mm-hmm. a phase there and there's it's not uncommon we're hearing it more and more with our guests some personal experiences you know why are we seeing and hearing that mm-hmm. more more with our first responder yeah well I think some of it has to do with there just being that parental power struggle right I mean I mean let's be honest I mean adolescents can be a real pain in the ass for everybody yes. you know yes. no matter what yes. pr- profession you're in and so I think there that power struggle of you know these are these are individuals that are problem solvers they're professional problem solvers they're used to taking a call or taking a case and they go and they figure it out and they talk to people and they get the answer and here you go and these are my charges done, right? That doesn't work um, with your kids. I mean, it it works better when they're smaller, but the older they get it, it kind of works less and less. So I think that automatically becomes such a challenge because it's just not what they're totally used to. And they don't have the same uh, options, uh, for dealing with them, maybe, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got a pain in the ass kid and I'm going to do this and sit you on the curb and then, you know, I'm going to do whatever is necessary. <laughs> That's probably not going to work great at home unless you're both on the job and you're okay with your own children sitting outside on the curb. That can maybe work, but um, it just, they don't have the same options. And so the frustration of that, I think, really gets in the way. And then I think really it just simply comes down to fatigue, I think, you know, one of the, the popular um, things to say right now is just not having the bandwidth, mm-hmm. right? Okay. When you are maxed out at work and then you come home and it's, you know, it's like young adults going, have a lot of feelings. Yeah, a lot and know? a lot of feelings, right? It's just, just not having the bandwidth to be able to deal with all of that. Yeah. I also think too, now our young adults aren't necessarily moving 
on like we did when we were younger. They're home longer, and that creates an issue too because, I don't know, most of us left home at 18, 19, and we haven't gone back. And I know I have a young adult still, and there's probably not – he's going to be there a lot longer, you know. I'm just a recent – yeah, empty nester. It's and, it's yeah. a different world now too, and I think um, our expectations too are, you know, of them moving on and they're not doing that quite you as can't, easily. Like, you can ask, then you can't really tell and then make right a young a, a young adult. You know, yes. we're eighteen versus you mentioned. You know, when they're younger, they you're still in control of them one way or the other, whether they, oh. there's a consequence or not. You know, or however you do it, but. Well, now they have feelings and they have voices yeah. and they have opinions and and they can. Uh, I think from my experience, some first responders just can't see that transition. Yeah. And so then it's like, oh, wait, you have an opinion. Now I, I don't know what to do with that because I have to not put effort in, you know, some verbal judo like, they, you know, they've learned <laughs> or de-escalating and all this. That is, it is exhausting after coming home from it and then walking in the door. It's not like, let's go get ice cream. Right. Or, hey, uh, you can do your homework later. Let's they're going to tell you and they're going to share and they're going to want that uh, FaceTime. Um, And and it doesn't always I think uh, it's not always balanced because I I think lack of understanding sometimes. Patience. Yeah. Um, So you've talked about, you know, we've talked about kids. We've talked about spouses um, and all of the challenges, right? And all of the difficulties and how, you know, you kind of treat that or approach that. But ha- when you have the opportunity to see a first responder come into your office, however way he got there or she got there, to, you know, finally getting through treatment and then seeing them on the other side. I mean, have you had some of those great successes or, you know, watch somebody walk that journey? And what is that like? Yes. Yes, I have um, had the privilege to be able to see that happen. And it's it's a wonderful thing. I mean, I really, I think first and foremost, I feel a tremendous responsibility to keep people alive. Right. And then with that, once we've got that under control, then I want you to live healthy and happy in that life that you're choosing to have and whatever that looks like. And, um, it, it means that you can continue in your career and have a long, healthy career. If you want to, if you decide that I have, I've given what I can and I'm, I'm at the end of my service and I'm gonna, you know, put a put an end date on it then you can do that too but I think it's helping somebody get to that place where you can make a thoughtful rational decision and not have it be because I certainly hear this too right Um, guys come in and especially when I mean just it's all bad and they're saying I can't do it I can't do it I can't work can't you know can't be at home just can't do any of it it's like whoa 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 time out I'm gonna ask you that question again in six months and see where we're at, but we're not answering that today. Right now, I need to make sure that you're going to stay alive and how you're going to stay alive and what that's going to look like. Makes sense. So as a professional, what advice can you give to a first responder? Come now. (laughs) Awesome. That is my advice. Come now. 
every time I have the opportunity to be in front of a group, I am telling people whether or not you think you need it or not, come now. Don't wait until there is some big traumatic event. Don't wait till your wife has already packed the car. Come now. Um, And I'll kind of add on to that too. Retirees. Um, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of retirees, police and fire. And, you know, especially if you are sort of nearing the very end of your career, come now while you have the resources, when you have Craig Tiger as an option, when you have your full health insurance benefits and you can get care, you know, don't wait. People who think that as soon as they retire, They're going to sail off into the sunset and none of these thoughts, these feelings, these images are going to happen again. I am here to tell you, you will fall off a cliff. Like, don't do that. So come now for help. And just, I tell everybody that come now. Okay. And what advice would you give the family member of a first responder? Family members, you know, just start off as kindly and as gently as you can to say, I'm noticing this thing about you, or I'm noticing that you just seem more irritable or you're just seem more tired, um, lately. Um, you know, I wish there was some, some way that we could figure out how to help you with that. It's amazing when you add we to a statement like that. And again, you're doing that companioning thing. You're joining with your spouse and asking that question, the difference that that makes, as opposed to saying, you are doing this, you are doing that. You're yelling at the kids. You're not here for me. Um, you don't care that I've got all this stuff going on. When you make it a we, then it's a, then it's an us problem, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that can really help. So starting off as kindly and gently as you can, um, and then if and when that doesn't work, then yeah, you might need to kind of up that ante a little bit and start asking more, start asking more directly. Or, you know, um, the, the our wives do get to that point where they say, I'm out. Mm-hmm. You're, you're either going to make a change or you're not, but I can't continue to live like this. Wow, mm. that's big. Yes. Okay, and then for the final um, element, what advice would you give public safety agencies? So I don't work for any city. As I'm in private practice, I work for myself and I work for my client. And when I make a recommendation to my client, it is for their their health and their safety and they are the number one so i am not as concerned with staffing issues with vacancies Uh, what i want to do as best i can is work with um, the agency work with peer support to give my recommendations but really just clearly explain why i'm making that recommendation and to say you know i'm recommending that this officer take a leave of absence so that we can, um, you know, get him kind of settled out and then go from there. Or we're asking that, um, you know, he or she be able to come um, at, at some point during their shift. I might do that. But agencies, we all have to do better. 
and agencies do too. And I'm, I am here to tell you it is everybody's responsibility. So I'm talking to families and I'm talking to every, um, copper firefighter that's going to be listening to this podcast. We all have a responsibility when you see something, when you see someone that doesn't look right, um, is doing something that doesn't feel right, do something about it. My sergeants, my cap, my captains, you are that first level um, of care for your people. You have to have your eyes on them. Do something, ask them, and then get help if you think something isn't right. Um, there are some great peer support efforts out there, but that peer support is maybe overseeing an entire agency and they're not out there. They're not, they're not on the street anymore. So we have to rely on each other and we are all responsible for it. So, you know, not being afraid to ask somebody, are you okay? Okay. Not, Hey man, you good? (laughs) Not that that's a different question. Are you okay? Because what I'm asking you really is, are you safe? Are you safe right now? Are you safe to go home? Mm-hmm. Right? So the, all of those things matter. So when you're seeing, as a therapist, and, and I would say this for all professionals, um, counseling, therapists, doctors, you're coming in and you're, you're hearing all of these stories, let alone from what you've experienced, but now you're hearing all of these stories and you're hearing all of these traumas. How do you, that's a lot of energy coming at you. How do you avoid compassion fatigue? Like what does your self-care look like? Um, so I lift a lot. Um, no, no, really. Um, exercise helps keep me sane. That's one of the things that, that okay. I do. So I do circuit training, you know, like four or five times a week and I do it at night, uh, you know, on purpose because that's where I dump it. So okay. all of that, yes, all of that stress, all that stuff coming into me, I, that's where I dump it. And again, I think it, it, you're, you're right about that in that how I work with clients in acting as a companion and being right there with you, I do. It's like I, I get I get that draft. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm getting it because I'm in it with you. But that's how I do it and that's how I feel I am most effective. So I'm not going to change anything about that. I just have to really work hard at, at taking care of me. And exercise is definitely one of the ways that... Um, I help myself with that. Can you tell us what you are most grateful for? Oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, I'm most grateful for the gifts I have to help others. I firmly believe that I am doing exactly what I was put on the earth to do. And I just do that and a variety of ways. I definitely do it clinically to the best of my ability. Mm-hmm. Um, I also do it in some um, alternative ways that I think you're gonna ask me about um, after this portion ends, but I'm incredibly grateful for that, that I've been able to maintain enough of my own sanity to be able to serve and protect others. It is a pleasure and a privilege to help the men and women that I do, and I, I take that uh, very seriously, and it, it really, I. It's, it's exactly what I was put on the earth to do. Well, Jennifer, 
I we wow. cannot thank you enough. Mm-hmm. This has been such a powerful episode, and I am grateful to you, and very honored and privileged to have had this moment to meet you and hear your story and your experience and expertise. Quite honestly, and thank you not only for your service to us, but to your service now to your fellow first responder. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for riding along with us today. We hope our perspectives from the passenger seat helped you gain some insights to navigate the Leo lifestyle. For additional information and resources, visit us on Instagram at Ride Along Chronicles. Follow, like, and comment for more. Also, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, hit the subscribe button. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions about this episode or suggestions for future topics, leave a comment or send a confidential email. See you on the next ride.